So let's go ahead and start in Psalm 1. And you can turn there. I'm, I'm not going to do an exposition of it today, but I'm going to read it in a few minutes. I want to give you a quote from Martin Luther. I think uh, it's one of the most interesting quotes on the Psalms I've ever heard. But he said, you may rightly call the Psalter, the nickname for the Psalms, you may rightly call the Psalter a Bible in miniature. And I never thought about that before until Luther wrote that, until I read that. You may rightly call the Psalter a Bible in miniature in which all things which are set forth more at length in the rest of scriptures are collected into a beautiful manual of wonderful and attractive brevity. And I decided to test that, and I, I've looked at every major doctrine that we hold to, and every major doctrine is represented in the Psalms. Every one of them. Every attribute of God that is taught in Scripture is also represented in the Psalms. And so, uh, you, you know, you might say, well, if I had to pick one book of the Bible, which one am I going to pick? Psalms is pretty high on that list. And thankfully, we don't have to make that choice. But I'm eager to see how we'll learn what the whole Bible says just by going through the Psalms. Just to kind of give you a little background, it's been, I don't know, seven or eight years that it's been on my heart to want to teach through all the Psalms, specifically to preach through them. And this is a, this is a challenge because with 150 Psalms and some of them pretty lengthy, you get a, a challenge with the variety and the creativity which I think good preaching demands. And I think that would be a little overwhelming. I don't think I could do this in a church that has one sermon per week um, for the whole church. I don't think that would be possible. And I'd even been hesitant to make Psalms a Sunday evening series for all the same reasons. And just to illustrate this, a few years ago, I shared with, the, with our staff at the time, a uh, smaller staff than we have now, I, I said, I want to preach through every Psalm. And you could see all of the, the concern on their faces because they were doing the math, you know, and you know, that's going to take three or four years by the time you take Christmas and, and Thanksgiving and all those breaks. And, and uh, so they were brainstorming with me, well, maybe you could preach, you know, 20 of them and then take a year off. And, and we had all these uh, scenarios. But the concern was I would paint myself into a three and a half, four year long corner that I couldn't escape from. Um, so over the past years, I've prayed for a way to preach through and record uh, a message on every single psalm. One of my heroes in preaching and my um, primary instructor in my doctoral program, Steve Lawson, he preached through the Psalms in his church context. He wrote a set of commentaries as a result. And in his particular context in the Baptist church, he was preaching Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday evening. Well, he was preaching the Psalms originally on Wednesday evening. And what he started to notice is that it was a large church and people in the church were picking and choosing which series they really like. And they were only coming to that service. And so periodically, he would spontaneously rotate all of his sermons. And he would do Wednesday night on Sunday morning, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and, and just mix it up. And people would be there ready to take notes on a, on a sermon in the Gospel of John, and they find they're in Psalm 53. And so I don't guarantee that that might not ever happen. <clears throat> As the Lord uh, added to our leadership here in the church, I, I really have sensed an urgency to occupy myself less and less with things that we have a lot of capable leaders here who can do. And I, I want to occupy myself more and more with uh, preaching the word. And, and for me, uh, the clock is always ticking for me, both in my own life and in the urgency that I see in the world. And so I, I'm pretty highly driven 
to preach to the church as often as I can in any way I possibly can. And so this is one way to do that. And so with, uh, with prayer and urging and the support of my wife, and, and I, I have to say, I'm going to give Sylvia credit. She said, why don't you do it during Sunday school? And so that's, thank you, sweetie, for a great idea. Um, and, and she's been very supportive of this. It was probably, I don't know, a few months ago I made the decision to, to start down this road. Um, God brought Jay Street here, and he was a shoe-in to take over BTI. And he knew that the moment he walked in. We've been talking about that for a year and a half. I just didn't know what I was going to do instead. Um, so my prayer is that as many people as possible, either in this, I guess you can call it a class. I'm doing all the talking. But uh, in this class or in the others, I, I've always prayed that our church makes this a full Lord's Day. Takes advantage of everything. I mean, what, what, what else are you going to do on a Sunday? Uh, what else is there that's good? Um, so I want our Lord's Day to be almost a mini Bible conference every single week, and I want to do my part for that. So while this is technically a Sunday school class, we're staying with that old tradition, um, that, that label, and we enjoy the informality of the setting, I really decided in my own heart, I need to preach the Psalms. I, I don't want to just do didactic uh, lectures to you. I want to preach the Psalms, and, and I really can't think of any better way to warm up the Lord's Day to me, to be in a psalm and to walk through it in the Bible's book of worship. Now, I, I kind of debated what to do at the beginning of this, and I'm tempted to take three, four, five, six weeks to introduce the psalms, but I, I kind of want to get going. And so I'm just going to spend today only kind of doing a, a really broad overview of the psalms. Uh, at certain points, I might stop and do uh, some special topics in the psalms, but I really want to just jump in next time with Psalm 1. But to begin our time this morning, I want to read the glorious kind of guardian of all the Psalms. And we actually put Psalm 1 and 2 together. And I'll explain why in a few minutes. But let's just read this together and follow along with me. Psalm 1, and and I think you all know this, I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not rise in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their feathers apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So now, O kings, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he become angry, and you perish in the way, 
for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So I want to just give you kind of a a brief roadmap of the Psalms, just a way to think about the Psalms. And I'll just highlight some of the most important features. And as I started going through, they all started started beginning with the letter B. That wasn't on purpose, uh, but I went with it because I'm a preacher and I get to do that. So five features uh, for you to be aware of, I suppose. Here's the list. The basics of the Psalms, the brands of the Psalms, and I'll repeat this, the bristles of the Psalms, the branch of the Psalms, and the beauty of the Psalms. And I'll repeat that as we go. First, I want to just go through the basics of the Psalms. And this is just kind of high-level, high-altitude things. I think it's helpful to us to know that in the Hebrew Bible, the title of the Psalms is Tehillim. And that means praises. You don't have to worry about the Hebrew word, but the title is praises. Now, it's actually an ironic title because if you go verse by verse through the Psalms, there's actually more verses of lament and sadness than there are praise. But nearly all of the laments, all the sad Psalms end with praise, and so it's appropriate to name it praise. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, that's where we get the name Psalms. And these, it just means songs accompanied by the plucking of strings. So it actually speaks more to the usage of the Psalms than it does to the theological importance of it. And just so you know, um, the little superscriptions, the little words at the, at the beginning of many of the Psalms, uh, for example, Psalm 3 begins, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son, those are in the Hebrew text. Those are part of the inspired text. And one of the, one of the challenges of reading the Hebrew Bible versus the English Bible is that the verses are all numbered differently. Because in the Hebrew Bible, that superscription, the Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son, is verse 1. And then in our Bible, verse 1 is verse 2. So you always have to be off by 1 uh, if you're studying from the original language. You can even see from the Psalms that they have multiple authors, David, Moses, Solomon, Asaph, the sons of Korah, Heman, and Ethan, and then uh, perhaps some that we're unsure of. But what's unusual about the Psalms is that it wasn't written by one man sitting down at one time or even one prophet over a period of years in his lifetime. This is written by multiple authors over almost a thousand years. And so it's, it's an interesting book. The first psalm was likely written around 1410 B.C. That's Psalm 90, written by Moses. And the last psalm, probably written around 450 B.C., Psalm 126. And so almost a, a, a millennia, a millennia of, of psalms here, one millennium. And so the Psalter isn't the work of one single author. And the arrangement of the psalms didn't happen all in one shot. There was not one big meeting where somebody said, well, let's figure out the best order of this. It's a final product of various collections over the centuries, over the course of basically a thousand years. And there's quite a debate as to whether the order of the Psalms is inspired in the same way that Psalms actually are. I tend toward the order being inspired um, simply because it's so logical and it's put together with such beauty and it actually tells a story, which I'll go through here in just a moment, But the step-by-step actions that resulted in the order of the Psalms, we don't have a lot of information about that. There's a lot of good study and speculation. But there is a five-fold division called books. Book one, two, three, four, and five of the Psalms. And and I'm going to walk through that in a moment. 
Psalm 1 is clearly the introduction, and many put Psalm 1 and 2 together, which I do, as the introduction, and that it was purposeful. So about the time the Greek translation of the Old Testament was completed, the Septuagint, this is about 200 B.C., the order of the Psalms as we have them today was set. By the time Jesus ministered, Psalm 1 was Psalm 1, Psalm 150 was Psalm 150. It was in this order. The Midrash, which is an ancient Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, says this. As Moses gave five books of law to Israel, so David gave five books of Psalms to Israel. Now, David's given general credit because he writes almost half the Psalms, 73 for sure, and maybe a couple of more. So the process for combining the Psalms, compiling them, it, it can't be completely reconstructed. But there's, there have been some scholars who have done some really good work on this and probably made the best, uh, the best hypothetical guesses. And probably my favorite is Dr. Alan Ross. And he says, he goes through a process that makes good sense, but he, uh, he's a good scholar. He says, I'm not staking my reputation on this. So if Dr. Ross won't do it, I'm definitely not going to. But here's, here's his theory. And this isn't a guess. This is based in, in what he saw as sound practices among ancient uh, scholars and scribes. So the first thing that happened was simply individual psalms being written. That from the earliest times of Israel, individual psalms began to be collected, and they were collected in the sanctuary. They were collected in the tabernacle, the, the traveling worship center for Israel. Eventually, they would be collected in the temple. And what I mean by collected is literally physical copies um, brought to the tabernacle and placed in a, in a room, placed on a shelf, placed in a, in a safe place um, to be used uh, during a, a worship time. Now, there were lots of psalms and songs that weren't collected. They weren't made part of the official group of psalms. And we have them in other places of Scripture. We have the Song of Moses, the Song of Miriam in Exodus 15, the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. There's the Song of Deborah in Judges 5, the Song of Jonah in Jonah 2. So there's lots of other psalms, but they're not part of the official collection that made it into the the tabernacle. So these individual poems, these Psalms are given to the chief musician and the chief musician would collect them and, and uh, in an era where there was precisely nobody on planet earth writing accurate praise music unto God, these were gold. And so the chief musician used these to um, lead the praise of God. And uh, one example would be First Chronicles 16.4 that God made some of the Levites ministers before the Ark of Yahweh even to bring remembrance and to thank and to praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. So these poems, these individual poems are collected and the musicians gathered together to sing to the Lord as just as a time of worship, not just for them and not just for the people, but for God. So then these individual poems, uh, if you've ever collected anything, what begins to happen naturally? You, you begin to put them in groups, right? And so... Now we went from individual poems to a collection of poems, collections. Uh, Psalm 72.20 mentions the existence of a collection called the Prayers of David. That that was a collection. I think that makes a lot of sense. He was the ultimate psalmist. 2 Chronicles 29.30 mentions not only the Psalms of David, but the collection of of Asaph. Uh, In King Hezekiah's time, about 700 BC, there's at least two collections. There's the collection of David. There's the collection of Asaph. That's Psalm 50 
And then Psalm 73 through 83. And then a little later on, you had Psalms 120 through 134. These became known as the pilgrim psalms. These were psalms associated uh, with those after the exile. They're, They're written after the exile, but there are also earlier psalms in existence specifically for singing when traveling to Jerusalem for festivals. And so Psalm 120 through 134 becomes associated with singing as you go to Jerusalem, which is pretty cool to think about. So you have these collections. Then I want to talk to you about the role of Psalm 1 and 2. This is, this is important. Together they form a very intentional introduction to the Psalms. That Psalm 1 and 2 are put there on purpose. And, and some feel they may even be written specifically to be the introduction to the Psalms. It wasn't just that, oh, these, these work well at the beginning. But they were actually written to be the introduction. And this is why it's great to take them together. I read to you Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Psalm 1 introduces human responsibility for remaining true to God's word, for being a covenant faithful follower of God. And so you get the the contrast here. Here's what the faithful are like. Here's what the wicked are like. And so there's human responsibility. But Psalm 2 gives the other side of that coin. It gives the certain prophetic hope of the provision of a divine king who takes responsibility for his own people. He is the one who gives safety and security and peace in the world to the people of God. So really, Psalm 1 and 2 give you the the two sides of human responsibility and divine sovereignty, all wrapped up there together. Luther noted this. The Psalms are really a a Bible in miniature, and it covers every theme in the Bible. But there are a few themes that are are really heavy in Psalms, and I'll just run through them quickly. Uh, The sovereignty of God is huge in Psalms. He's sovereign over creation. He's sovereign over the nations. He's sovereign over Israel. He's sovereign over individuals. So sovereignty is, is everywhere. You could very adequately teach the doctrine of the sovereignty of God through the Psalms. I'm going to come back to this one uh, extensively, but the kingdom of God is a huge theme in Psalms as well, that God will establish his rule over the earth uh, some have argued that the kingdom of God is the theme of Psalms, and I'll, I'll give you a case for that in a moment. And then you have two contrasting peoples. One, uh, most often, is just called the people of God, uh, and, and sometimes they're referred to as the righteous, and the opposite are the enemies of God. They're referred to as the wicked. You have the righteous and the wicked all over the Psalms, beginning in the very first Psalm, that the, the righteous man and the wicked man are contrasted with each other. Then you have theology proper. And I've already mentioned this, but the attributes of God are are demonstrated to his people through the Psalms. That if if you, for example, are discipling someone and you say you need to know God better, you could give them the assignment to read through the Psalms and simply note everything they learn about God. They'll end up with a notebook full of observations. And I just made a short list. I, I literally set a timer on my phone for 15 seconds. And here's what I came up with in the Psalms. Loyalty, goodness, faithfulness, righteousness, compassion, wrath, love, covenant loyalty, covenant faithfulness. And the list goes on because I believe that every attribute of God taught throughout the Bible is represented somewhere in the Psalms. And then, of course, if the kingdom of God is a theme, you have David and the Davidic covenant. Uh, There are some major Davidic covenant Psalms, such as Psalm 78, 89, 132, uh, and we'll get to some others. But David is a huge theme, and it's not coincidence that he writes 
half of the Psalms. He is the representative king of the kingdom that is to come. And so really, going back to the theme of kingdom, this is appropriate because kingdom, if you were here a few years ago for our Pentateuch series on Sunday nights, kingdom is the theme of the whole Bible. So it makes sense that kingdom is the theme of Psalms as well. Kingdom is connected to Psalms. And how how do we make this connection? How do we have a, a, a divine hymn book, but we're talking about the kingdom? Well, I think the most concise purpose to the book of Psalms I've ever read says this. The book of Psalms leads the righteous to pray to and praise Yahweh as they await the coming of God's kingdom. I'll even shorten it more. Psalms are here. The Psalms are here for you to praise and pray to God as you wait for the kingdom. It's to help you eagerly wait. It's to give you uh, your focus while you wait. And you know, if you get tired of waiting for the Lord, if your life is, is very, very hard, um, you say, well, I know what I can do during this time. I can work my way through the Psalms. And that's why for the two centuries of the church, every time the church or individuals in the church are in, in a bad situation or hurting or feeling desperate or hopeless, we make our way to the Psalms, don't we? They're our place of comfort while we wait for God to finish up his redemptive work. I mentioned earlier the five-book construction or the structure of the Psalms, and these really tell a story. That's why I I like the potential of this, the order of the Psalms actually being inspired, because each book of the Psalms uh, ends with a doxology, ends with praise. Psalm 1 and 2 are written together as the introduction, but here's how the books divide, and then I'm going to tell you what the story is. They divide book 1, Psalms 1 to 41, Book one deals with an exiled king expecting his kingdom in the future. Now, what, what king is currently, quote-unquote, exiled? What king is not ruling his kingdom? Well, it's Christ. He's not exiled because we sent him away. He's exiled because he has taken himself away. Jesus even uh, gave a parable of a, of a rich man who went away to receive a kingdom to himself and then was going to return. So book one through 41 broadly deals with a an exiled king expecting to receive a kingdom in the future. Psalm 24 is a great example. The king of glory who is returning. And so you have that anticipation. Book 2, Psalm 42 through 72, has many themes related to an ideal king. The ideal king, and and almost all of those are Psalms of David, and it, it gives you the contrast. David was a great king. He's not the ideal king. Because he is not God and he is a sinner. And so the ideal king, and so now you have the, the, the king who isn't here. You're contemplating who he is. He's an ideal king. Then you have book three, Psalm 73 through 89. 73 through 89. You could boil this down to the theme that the pure in heart hope in God, even when the kingdom is failing. When the kingdom seems to be failing, the pure in heart hope in God. You have uh, my favorite in that group is Psalm 77. Psalm 77 is structured like this. Wah, wah, wah. Oh yes, God is sovereign. Now I'm going to praise him. That's the structure of Psalm 77. It's, it's hoping in God even when the kingdom seems to be failing. Then book four, Psalms 90 through 106, really are centered around the theme of Israel in exile. 
93 through 99 are really the core of this. Israel in exile. These are sometimes even called the exile psalms. And, and it's, it's proof that the kingdom has failed. That the kingdom of God on earth was supposed to be Israel and there's no Israel anymore. They're exiled. And then book 5, 107 to the end to 150 are often called the post-exilic psalms, the post-exile psalms. That restoration has taken place but there's still something incomplete. And, and it ends, obviously, on the glorious declarations of Psalm 150. And you might say, well, this seems very, very complete. Praise Yah. Praise God in the sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty expanse. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to the abundance of His greatness. And then all the instruments, the, the trumpet, God's instrument, of course, the harp and the lyre, the tambourine, dancing, stringed instruments, pipe, resounding cymbals, Clashing symbols. Let everything that has breath praise Yah, praise Yah. And our, our more traditional translations, praise the Lord. And you say, that seems like that the kingdom has come. Everything is there. Everything is complete after the exile. That people have returned. If you sat through Ezra and Nehemiah on Sunday nights, you know that only 50,000 people returned. Only 43,000 of them were actually Jewish. And the kingdom failed. It ends with Nehemiah going, okay, This is bust. Lord, would you at least remember me? Because these people are terrible. That's how Ezra and Nehemiah ends. What is the hint in Psalm 150 that the the return from exile is not the restoration of Israel? The hint is that we are praising God in his mighty expanse, the sky. That hasn't happened yet. If you're flying on an airplane, you can say, aha, see, Psalm 150 is working. Um, But try doing that without a plane. That's what, uh, that's what the people of God will be able to do. So the book tells a story, and the story is around the kingdom. The king is exiled. There's an ideal king we hope in, the pure in heart hope in God, even when the kingdom seems to be failing. Israel, the kingdom of God on earth, is exiled, proof of the failure, and then the post-exilic psalms of, of hope, but it still pushes us to look to the future. So that's just the basics of the psalms, and I'll, I'll take less time on the rest now I want to talk about the brands of the Psalms. What are the brands? What, what are the types that we have? And they don't fall into real easy categories where one Psalm means only one thing. We understand that. But here's some broad categories that I think are helpful, and, and I'll go through them quickly. And I, I list this one first because it happens the most, and that is the Psalm of Lament, the Psalm of, of Sadness. There's more expressions of lament than, than praise, but the thing with lament is that praise wins the day, that there's always a winner in praise. Uh, you might have a song of petition to God to bring relief and deliverance. You have situations where it feels like God is not keeping his covenant promises. Uh, you get this question a lot. How long, O Lord? You have God... Uh, giving you a time of distress and the psalmist is saying i'm i'm tired of this i i don't want to do this anymore i don't like the way this feels and so lament one of the great things about lament is that it tells us that god has inspired complaint to him does that make sense not whining sinful complaint but the expression of the sorrow of my soul and so when someone says well you should never ask god why could I name one person in the New Testament who asked why? How about Jesus? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's an expression of sorrow is what it is. And there's, there's all kinds of laments. 
There's the, the lament of an entire group calling upon God, like Psalm 94. The lament of an individual. Penitential laments. I'm lamenting my own sin. Uh, Psalm 32, Psalm 51. And there's one other type of lament, which I'm going to mention in a moment. I'll come back to it. And then the ones we associate psalms with, the psalms of praise. These are praises of the individual. They're deeply personal in language, but they're meant to be sung in the assembly. You have praises of the congregation, used by the large congregation. You, the, these praises are sung in, profession, in processions, rather sacrifices, responses. I can you imagine how cool it would be if, if we had uh, a particular Sunday where we said, well, let's gather uh, 10 blocks away at, for, at, at 9.30, and instead of Sunday school hour, we're going to sing psalms as we march together all the way to church. Talk about preparing your heart for worship. And so that's what the praise psalms are used for. There are wisdom psalms. There are psalms that are written in, in proverbial language uh, that, that tell us things that we need to know. Uh, Psalm 127 is a good example of proverbial language that speaks of uh, unless Yahweh builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. That's a teaching. That's, a, that's giving you facts about the Lord. Um, they include words of blessing for those who follow God's law. So you have lament, praise, wisdom. You have psalms of thanksgiving. Uh, probably after praise, thanksgiving is what we most associate the psalms with. They're sung after God has answered a lament. So here's how it goes. I lament, I cry out to God, he answers me, and now I give him thanks. And so that's a a great little form in many psalms. How do you know it's a psalm of praise versus a psalm of thanks? Uh, The psalm of praise uh, is is a little bit different because the psalm of thanks has a, a direct reference to thanks and thanksgiving. But here's the thing. Um, there is an element of giving glory to God because the, the terms for giving thanks or being thankful or demonstrating thanksgiving, they're, they're, not, um, they're not just meaning I have an internal attitude of thankfulness. It's something that means I'm going to proclaim what God has done. Here's the trouble I was in, here's the prayer I prayed, and here's how he answered me. And I'm going to give thanks. It's a public giving of thanks. Then you have songs of remembrance. I wish we had more hymns like this, but the songs of remembrance are remembering God's great works in the past. You can walk through a history of Israel in Psalm 77, Psalm 78, Psalm 105. The psalms of remembrance are there to establish the supremacy of God and to tell us that God is the greatest of all the gods. Then you have psalms of trust. These are psalms to offer praise to God, but there's more of a an emphasis on the fact that God is trustworthy, that I put my, my trust in Him and He didn't disappoint me. And then you have the royal songs. The royal songs celebrate the rule of God as king. You have the word king all over Psalms. I, I love that. You have God as king and the earthly kings also that He's appointed to govern Israel. And a lot of times there's a lot of overlap. And you even wonder, is this speaking of the heavenly king or the earthly king? Well, there, there's enough overlap that they help Uh, They help describe each other. There's allusions to pomp and circumstance, royal weddings, enthronements, very, very formal things. They have clear Messiah overtones and they anticipate Christ, just like Psalm 2 that I read earlier. Now, those are just some, that's one way of, of describing the Psalms. More often than not, they're combined. 
several types in one. A mixed psalm, though, is usually dominated by one type. Um, For example, Psalm 19, you would classify it two-thirds as a wisdom psalm and one-third as a penitential lament. Now, you might be saying, what does this have to do with me? I think it's useful to you when you read through a psalm to look at those categories and, and understand what the psalm is doing and try to categorize it. That helps you understand where it's going. So those are the basics and the brands. I want to give you a third feature. I've called this one the bristles of the psalms, the thorny, barbed, spiky psalms, the ones that we in the traditional church are less comfortable with. This is a type of lament that really is its own category, both as a psalm or as a portion of prayer in the psalms. And these are called the imprecatory prayers, imprecations, imprecatory. It just is a word that means a spoken curse. And we're not super comfortable with this in the church, especially if you haven't been well taught and you've been led to believe that the God in the Old Testament was in a really bad mood and the God in the New Testament is, is chill and he's okay now. And, and that, that's just wrong. Psalm 58. Do you indeed speak righteousness, O gods? Do you judge with equity, O sons of men? No, in heart you work unrighteousness. On the earth you prepare a path for the violence of your hands. The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak falsehood wander in error from birth. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like a deaf cobra that stops up his ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or the skillful caster of spells. Oh God, shatter their teeth in their mouth. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Yahweh. Let them flow away like water that runs off. When he aims his arrows, let them be as headless shafts. And he just keeps going on and on. And he he ends with, he will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And men will say there is a reward for the righteous and there is a God who judges the earth. So what do we do with this? Are are these mistakes? Is this a reference to how evil in heart the psalmist actually is and that, that we just don't have his confession of sin recorded? Are these relevant only to the old covenant, but in the new covenant we don't worry about the judgment of God anymore? Uh, or are they, are they model prayers to pray against your neighbors and co-workers who won't come to faith in Christ? I mean, it's reasonable to ask because this particular psalm I just read was David speaking of his neighboring nations. So what do we do with this? Well, let me give you some factors to consider because it's such a big part of the psalms. The first one is the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 12, 3, God promised to curse those who cursed Abraham and his people. And so the 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 psalms that are imprecatory could be seen as an extension of the Abrahamic covenant in that regard. The second factor to consider, the writings of Scripture are divinely inspired. The writers wrote what the Holy Spirit inspired through their pens. So never could we say, well, this is a sinful psalm that he just didn't confess and we don't see that. It's the third factor. True righteousness yearns to defend the holiness of God. It is not righteous to say, well, I just want everybody to be in heaven. Everybody doesn't want to be in heaven. And that's hard for people to grasp, but everybody doesn't want to be in heaven because being in heaven means submitting to God and most people won't submit to God. It is not holy, it is not righteous, it is not glorious to say, uh, to become a universalist and say everybody just needs to, to go to heaven. The number one thing we defend 
is not salvation. The number one thing we defend is the holiness of God. That's top. The glory of God. That's the, that's the highest priority. Uh, the martyrs of the great tribulation, Revelation 6, they cried out for God's vengeance. And lest you think that, that anytime you do that, that's a result of sin, they're in heaven already. And they're crying out for God's vengeance. Here's a fourth factor to consider. The doctrine of election tells us that God chooses for salvation all who are going to be saved. That, that means that salvation is of His grace. His grace is the means of salvation. It also gives us the idea that the means of the condemnation of the lost is not that God says, no matter what you say, you're going to hell. No, the means of the condemnation of the lost is their real, genuine, actual choice to rebel against God. They made that choice. So it's appropriate for us to pray for the elect to be saved and to pray for the non-elect to receive the justice that's rightly due to them. Now, we hit a wall there because we don't know who the elect and the non-elect are, right? But it is appropriate to pray that. What, what is evangelism? Evangelism is simply connecting the gospel with the elect. That's what evangelism is. There's one more uh, factor to consider. There's no example in the Psalms in which God corrects the imprecatory prayer of the writer. There's not one example where the writer says, God, break the teeth of the wicked. And the next verse says, And the Lord said, How dare you not be so compassionate? There's not one. There's not one correction of that. So those are the bristles of the Psalms. Here's a fourth feature. We'll call this the branch of the Psalms. Now, I was honestly sweating it out to see if I could stick with my leather B theme. Jeremiah 33:15 came to my rescue. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to branch forth. The branch, of course, is Christ. If the Davidic covenant is a major theme in the Psalms, if the kingdom is the major theme of the Psalms, then of course you should expect to see who? The king, Jesus Christ, prophetically to be a major theme. And you can hear the New Testament. In these verses, I'm going to read you. Now, I'm going to fly through these, but just listen. You, you can hear the New Testament. Psalm 2.7, I already read this. I will surely tell of the decree. He said to me, today, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Psalm 8.5, yet you made him a little lower than the angels and you crowned him with glory and majesty. That's quoted in Hebrews 1. Psalm 16.9 and 10, therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh will also dwell securely for you will not forsake my soul to Sheol. You will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. That's prophecy of the resurrection of Christ. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen: Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. That, that's written a thousand years before the crucifixion of Christ and 400 years before crucifixion was even invented. Psalm 23, 1. Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. You can hear John 10. I am the good shepherd. Psalm 24, 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors that the King of glory may come in, the physical return of Jesus Christ to physical cities on the earth. Psalm 40, 14 and 15. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to sweep it away. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in evil against me. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha, where was that prophecy fulfilled? The, the bystanders and the passers by at the cross when they're making fun of Christ and mocking him. 
Psalm 41.9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. The Gospels tell us that Judas was the fulfillment of that against Christ. Psalm 45.6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. That's quoted in Hebrews 1, and I love this one, because Hebrews 1 is very clear that God the Father, speaking to the Son, says your throne, O God, is forever. It is God the Father affirming the deity of Christ. Psalm 68, 24. They have seen your procession, O God, the God of my the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The physical presence of God in the sanctuary of God on earth. Psalm 69, 9, zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. I, I just read this morning in John's Gospel when the first of two times that Jesus cleansed the temple and it said, and his disciples remembered the psalm that said, zeal for your house has consumed me. Psalm 72, 8, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Speaking of Christ. Psalm 89, I have cut a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne from generation to generation. Satan tried to misuse this one. Psalm 91, 11, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Psalm 102, 15, so the nations will fear the name of Yahweh and all the kings of the earth, your glory. We've never seen that happen yet. That's a future day when Christ is here. The probably number one understood messianic phrase because it's quoted multiple times in the New Testament, eight, I believe, Psalm 110, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my feet until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, from Jerusalem, saying, have dominion in the midst of your enemies. And then I'll end with this one. Psalm 118, 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. You see now why on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, Jesus told these two disciples who said they didn't know what was going on. You see why he told them, oh, foolish and slow to believe. Christ is all over the Psalms. And so as we progress through the Psalms, Christ will appear over and over and over again. Let me do one more. The beauty of the Psalms. We've done basics, brands, bristles, and branch. But the beauty of the Psalms. The Psalms are given to us by God in the form of poetry. It's not meant to just give you information about God. And that's so important for us to understand. Yes, you can study the attributes of God in Psalms, but that's not the end purpose. The Psalms are a means by which the worshiper experiences God and, and feels the presence of God through his truth, experiences his presence by means of these rich truths which are, are elegant and they're beautiful and they're, they're magnificent. And I want to point this out. There's nothing informal about the Psalms. They're formal. They're regal. They're set up um, with precision. For example, think about the figures of speech in Hebrew poetry. Poetry is beautiful literature. It satisfies our God-given need for artistry, our our God-given need for aesthetics. And figurative language is memorable and it's instructive all at the same time. That's why every page of Scripture contains some sort of poetic or figurative language because it helps us remember. I'll give you an example. In Psalm 63, 7 and 8... 
David could have written about God. He could have written, God, I have been enabled to sing worship songs with joyfulness because I am safe in your protective care. When I think I cannot make it through the trials of life, you provide me with strength. That is true, and that's a glorious truth. But he didn't write that. Instead, what he wrote is, In the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. That is so memorable, even though God doesn't have wings. David's soul can't physically grasp anything and God doesn't have a physical right hand. But you remember it. The picture in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. You'll never forget that. You you can picture that every day of your life. It's designed to move us and to be ensconced in the presence of God through beautiful language. One of the beautiful features of Hebrew poetry, and if you've been at Grace any amount of time you've, you've heard this is parallelism and that's where there's there's two or more brief phrases that help explain each other they're they complement each other it's it's not only beautiful and elegant but it's a it's a self-contained commentary it helps you interpret the text now the study of parallelism is huge i just want to give you just a couple of little things to look for so i think it's helpful to you because it helps you understand the psalm uh, the most common type is called synonymous parallelism where the, where point A is the same as point B. It's just said differently. And I'm going to go back to Psalm 1 and just give you some examples of these. Psalm 1, verse 5. Therefore the wicked will not rise in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. It's the same thought repeated in, in, one different, in two different ways. Then the opposite of that, there's contrasting parallel, parallelism. The second line is in contrast to the first, and it helps give the truth. Psalm 1.6, For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There's a contrast, and it's a very black and white contrast. There's another kind that some call completion parallelism, that the second line simply completes the idea of the first. Psalm 1.3, He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. So you have, you have parallelisms talking about the same thing, but one thought completes the other. And this one is interesting to me because it really happens more, I think, than we recognize. Uh, some call this stair-step parallelism. Stair-step parallelism takes part of the first line, repeats it, and adds more information to it. That's why I said it's, a, it's like a running commentary and there isn't an example of that in Psalm 1, but Psalm 29.1 says, Ascribe to Yahweh. We'll stop right there. That's the first line. Ascribe to Yahweh means to give him credit. Ascribe to Yahweh, O sons of the mighty. Then it repeats it. Ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. So if you say, what does it mean to ascribe to Yahweh? It means to give him credit for what? Glory and strength. So if you look for those, just four or five, uh, or I skipped one, figurative parallelism, Figurative parallelism, that the second line explains the first with a figure of speech or the other way around. The wicked are not so. They're like chaff which the wind drives away. So it's parallel, but there's a a figure of speech. So regardless of whether you remember those little labels, which doesn't matter, if you look for parallelism and see how they help explain each other, it really makes the Psalms an, an encased commentary on itself. And so that's very helpful. Well, I want to just finish up with two things for you to think about this morning. And I, I mentioned the first one already, but I want to go back to it. I believe that for me, the book of Psalms teaches me that the term informal worship is an oxymoron. The term informal worship is unhelpful at every level. 
It's so far from how scriptures present worship. What is informal worship actually talking about? It's talking about making people happy. Formal worship is about ascribing glory and strength to God. Informal worship is not a useful term. Psalms keeps us on track. I, I think sometimes we use the word God without forgetting who we're, or without remembering who we're referring to. Psalms keeps us on track. This is God we're talking about. There's nobody higher. I think Christians speak with more respect of the president or the governor than they do of God sometimes. Then one other takeaway. I, for me, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity and I think it might be for some of you as well. If this is what you're going to commit to, I believe if you'll take a little time to take a few notes or go, if you're not a note taker, go back and listen to these uh, recordings again. I believe this will be transformative for you. It'll make you more reverent. It'll make you more humble. It'll make you know God more. And most of all, it'll make you more effective worshipers. And that's always my goal as a shepherd is to, is to push us toward being more effective worshipers. I'm eager to see how the Lord shapes my own heart. I cannot tell you how much sleep I lost last night just being excited about this morning. Because I want to be transformed. I want to walk through this together. And there will be a day, I'm guessing in about three and a half years, where we go through Psalm 150. And I would love to hear what the Lord did for you. And I know he'll do much for me. So let's pray together and then we'll be done for this time. Our Father, we thank you for this time. We're just getting warmed up. We're just thinking about praising you and being worshipers. I pray, Lord, that as in a few moments we enter into our more formal time of worship where we are really coming both in joy and in trembling before a holy God. I pray that our hearts are prepared to be humble, to be bowed before you, to be those that are making you greater and ourselves less. Thank you for this time. We pray it would be a blessing to you and be useful to our walks with Christ. In his name we pray, amen.